0: Well, we have been considering uh, together over these last few weeks what God's justice means for the church of Jesus Christ uh, as it relates to our lives together uh, and uh, to our work in the world, right? The the role and the relationships we're to play uh, in the world where God has placed us. Some of the questions that arise in conversations like this are... Like, what are the parameters within which Christians ought to invest our time and energy, right? Are there, you know, uh, boundaries, so to speak, of of what defines Christian faithfulness? And if we go outside of those boundaries, are we kind of distracting ourselves away from uh, what God has given us to do? For that matter, what exactly is the primary mission of the church? Uh, What what is it that God has given the church of Jesus Christ to do uh, in the world? Um... Does concern for social welfare, for justice in society, etc. distract the church from our proper focus, like what we should really be working on? Could it even be, as some indeed warn, that to the extent that we engage with the brokenness of our world and spend time and energy and resources trying to alleviate suffering around us and investing in activism for the sake of justice— that we're actually uh, diminishing the gospel or distorting it somehow in danger of losing it altogether. These are not unimportant questions. Um, And they're perhaps deceptively complex because they sound kind of basic. They sound like the answers might be obvious, but I think the complexity of those issues is seen in the persistent and rigorous (laughs) disagreement uh, and debate that exists within conservative reformed evangelicalism right so bible loving gospel proclaiming christians disagree on these things where exactly those lines get drawn and what is the mission and what isn't the mission and what's a distraction and what's the main purpose and what constitutes injustice and all these things there's there's differing opinions all over the place In uh, the previous messages in this series, I've made a few arguments from certain passages of scripture. Um, One of those arguments, maybe the most important of those arguments, has been that the church's main mission is to make disciples. That's undeniable, you can't argue with that. That's from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go make disciples, that's the great commission. But, I argued, that the task is bigger than just tallying conversions making disciples is more than just telling the message of christ crucified and raised and getting converts into christianity it's 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 not less than that but it's it's bigger than that it's bigger than doctrinal awareness right we're not just training theologians right oh i have a great grasp of all of the sort of doctrines of the faith or teachings of the bible that's good We want to grow in our theological awareness, but discipleship is bigger than that. Discipleship is a lifelong pursuit entailing every sphere of life, whereby we seek to yield ourselves increasingly to the authority of King Jesus. And if that's discipleship, then disciple making is inviting others into citizenship in that same kingdom and into that same lifelong pursuit those who would suggest that, that too much focus or energy on things that fall outside of the, the boundaries of preaching the gospel is a distraction, they usually have this sort of rallying cry. Like all the church needs to do is just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. That's what the church should be doing. Just preach the gospel. That's it. And that sounds very pious. And let me say very clearly, we should not do less than that. I'm fully devoted to proclaiming the gospel. If I stop proclaiming the gospel, I should stop having a job, right? I I need to go learn some things and be taught by the Lord before I'm able to stand in a place like this again. I am committed to proclaiming the gospel, but just preaching the gospel is a big enough task, It's a big enough endeavor if the task is tally conversions. If the task is simply announce the good news, and people will believe it and come into the family of God, then just preach the gospel is big enough. It's it's big enough. And in fact, if that's all that we're supposed to be doing, then I would argue we could all just grab like bullhorns and walk around the busiest streets and just tell the gospel over and over, trusting that it's going to fall on ears and some of those ears will hear and respond with faith and people will be converted, right? If, if that's the goal, then just loudly proclaiming the gospel message ought to be enough. But the task of discipleship is bigger than that. The task of discipleship and of disciple making entails much more than that. And so I think just preach the gospel can't adequately summarize the shape of discipleship or the church's mission of disciple making. Now, you that sounds almost like I'm denying the sufficiency of the bible or of the gospel and so there's bristling perhaps um that's not what i'm suggesting but i am suggesting that that discipleship in itself means much more than just assenting to a few certain facts about jesus uh and then boom i'm saved and now the work is done at that point perhaps we could say the work has just started because then jesus says now teach them to observe everything i've commanded you it's much bigger than just tallying conversions That's what we talked about two weeks ago from Matthew uh, 28. So that's one big thing that I've argued uh, in this series. And another thing that I've argued is that to the extent that we try to place boundaries around obedience, like we draw borders across which the command to love our neighbor may not carry us, then we veer into the territory of self-justification. We start to bear an unflattering resemblance to the lawyer who asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I think the story, the parable that Jesus told in response to that question in Luke chapter 10 makes it quite plain that the neighbor love Jesus has in mind is not limited by any religious, political, social, or ethnic barriers. Perhaps tending to a bleeding man in a ditch will indeed be a distraction, but it may just be a distraction that puts the gospel of the kingdom in plain view. Instead of obscuring it, with rhetoric or rationalizations. I've argued that our identity as exiles and sojourners in this world, which is not our home, does not exempt us from responsibility to the broken world around us. God's instructions to Israel during their days in exile in Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah included the command to seek the welfare of the city for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The exiled church is surely no different in that God intends for us to bless and benefit the people and institutions around us. The people and institutions around us are not ultimate. They're not the most important thing, but God has a role for his church to play in bearing the light of the kingdom into those places. Mike Roach from the Garden Church suggested to us last week that our salvation is itself a call to embody God's justice and righteousness in the world. By our faithful representation of justice, we shine a bright light into darkness and adorn the gospel with a good public witness. So these are the this is the ground we've covered in this series, and I plan to wrap up the series today, which is why I give you this sort of overview of where we've been, because I hope it sort of makes sense together. So today I want to wrap the series up by pointing you to a biblical theme that is, I believe, the single most helpful category for considering and answering questions like these. The theme of the kingdom of God. You've heard about it already. I preached a message a couple weeks ago from Matthew 28 suggesting, of course, that the kingdom of God is what, the, what discipleship is all about. We've sung songs and read scriptures this morning that speak a, a good deal about God as our king and even Jesus' prayer that his kingdom would come The the very shape of discipleship in Christ's great commission concerns his authority as king and our subservience to him as his subjects and our responsibility to teach one another to observe all that he's commanded. But it is such a robust and pervasive theme in the Bible that it seems to me we're almost certain to get these issues wrong if we don't center our discussions of justice righteousness, faithfulness, witness, and love of neighbor around the kingdom of God. I think it's a topic we need more of. We need to, to learn it better. We need to, to speak of it more. We need to think of our lives in relation to the kingdom of God. So quick outline uh, for where we're going to go this morning. I want to tell you today about the centrality of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom, and the call of the kingdom. Three C words for those of you who like a uh, pithy the centrality, the character, and the call of the kingdom of God. So starting with the centrality of the kingdom, or another way to phrase this would be seeing the kingdom as a biblical framework. God's kingly rule over his people permeates the Bible. In fact, in a way, it provides the narrative rails along which all the stories of the Bible run from start to finish. Uh, Australian theologian uh, Graham Goldsworthy has written extensively on this topic and on biblical theology, which is tying all of Scripture together across themes and ideas. And and he has uh, provided a really helpful kind of three-part overview of the story of the Bible in terms of the kingdom, and it's this. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the narrative framework of the entire Bible. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And if you think about just the major movements within sort of biblical history, you can see that unfold. Of course, the story begins in Genesis chapter one and two with God's creation of the world, His creating of Adam and Eve, human beings in his image who are given what? Dominion, right? Have dominion over uh, the world, over the earth. And so in Eden, before the fall, Adam and Eve uh, were in the garden under God's loving command. And everything was great. That was the way that it was supposed to be. It didn't last very long. And by Genesis chapter 3, the wheels are coming off, as we know very well. Fast forward a bit to the story of Israel, which takes up the vast majority of the Old Testament. God chooses a family, namely the descendants of Abraham, as his unique people. He gives them the land of Canaan and allots territories to tribes. So there's God's people are the chosen descendants of Abraham in God's place, the land that he's given them in which to, to live and, uh, and to occupy. And he rules over Israel through the agency of kings, especially through the, the line of kings that comes from David's family. Now, that doesn't go very well. In fact, that's kind of part of the point is to see that outside of God's complete sovereignty and complete human submission to his authority, things don't work right. People hurt each other. People's relationship with God is broken. People's relationship to the world that they're in is twisted and distorted and combative. And this is the way that it goes. But nevertheless, the the story of Israel is a, a version of that same theme of God's people in God's place under God's rule. And remember that even from the start, when God called Abram and he gave him the promise in chapter 12 of Genesis, he intended to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's descendants. And so even within the boundaries of old covenant Israel, the boundless kingdom of God is foreshadowed. So that's the Old Testament. You've got Eden, you've got Israel. Then the biggest thing that happens in all the Bible is Jesus Christ appears on the scene. And the Gospels, of course, unfold for us what we see there. And in the person of Jesus, God and man and place all relate to one another perfectly again, right? Jesus is truly God and Jesus is truly man without sin. And so there's union and and submission and love there. And Jesus calls himself the new temple, the new Israel, These are realities about Jesus that indicate the place, the locus, if you will, of the worship of God is no longer a geographical boundary or a physical destination. It is the person of Jesus Christ. So in Christ himself, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, is seen in one person. In the age of the church... From the time that Christ instituted the church until the time he returns, the age that we live in, we see this same theme. God's people are those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. So God's people are the believers in Jesus. God's place, well, this is a little fuzzier in our day and time because the place is sort of dispersed around the globe in local assemblies. Right, So God's people in God's place is in the church, even in local churches, which are expressions of the the kingdom, expressions of God's uh, family and and citizenship in that kingdom, under God's rule where Jesus uh, rules the church by his word. The believers come together in local assemblies all over the world and we live under the authority of God's word. And so God mediates his authority to us through the teaching, the right teaching of the scriptures. God's people, God's place, under God's rule. Jesus gave to the church, by the way, the keys of the kingdom. It's a phrase that might sound strange to you, and again, it's not something we talk about probably enough. But he gave to the church the keys of the kingdom conferring authority to conduct business, if you will, uh, on behalf of heaven. You can read more about that in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18 if you're curious for more. The keys of the kingdom are all about the church operating on behalf of heaven in this earth. And then finally... The Bible ends with a new heaven and a new earth where all the saints, past, present, future, who have trusted in Jesus Christ are gathered together in a new earth, a perfected world under Christ's unopposed rule. Christ is king, there is no opponent, and his kingdom is finally and fully established. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the storyline of all of Scripture. And that's the kingdom of God. That's what it comes down to. So I find that three-part description very helpful. Even in understanding, if in any given passage of Scripture that you flip to, trying to get an understanding of, okay, where in the storyline is this? What, what version, what expression of God's people in God's place under God's rule does this particular passage of Scripture fall it will actually help us to understand what's going on in the text. So, in light of the kingdom as a framing narrative for the entire Bible and the entire scope of redemption and of human history, it makes sense that the kingdom of God is the, the central message of Jesus and of his apostles. And, in fact, it is that, right? Uh, Mark summarizes Jesus' teaching in just that way. And from then on, he began to preach the kingdom of heaven, or to, to announce that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. That, that summarizes the teaching of Jesus. And then, of course, Mark, by the way, demonstrates over and over again that Jesus has authority over nature, over sickness and human health, over, uh, over demons, even over the realm of, of sin and forgiveness, right? He has the authority to forgive sins. Like Mark is very concerned to show us this Jesus has authority in every conceivable realm because the kingdom of God is the central organizing theme or an organizing theme of the Bible. There's more than one way to think about this, but it's a really helpful one. So if the kingdom of God is so central and so pervasive throughout the Bible, we have to ask, what is this kingdom like What is the kingdom of God like? And so we turn to the character of the kingdom. For that, I'd like to take you to Isaiah chapter 11. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn there. I'll spend just a few minutes here in the first 10 verses of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah, prophet of Judah, is... Looking forward in this passage and many other passages in his in the book that bears his name to the Messiah, the the anointed one that God would send and he's just finished in, in chapter 10 verses 33 and 34 he's spoken of God judging the wicked by cho- by chopping them down essentially. He envisions a forest where there are mighty trees and God has felled every tree because of sin and rebellion and wickedness. And so chapter 11, verse 1 begins with this scene in mind. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So as the prophet envisions this great forest where every tree has been leveled, it's just stump after stump. There's one tree, the stump of Jesse, where A twig, a branch, begins to grow. And Jesse is the father of David. So this is a reminder of a reference to God's promise to David that a king from his family would sit on the throne forever. So the Davidic covenant, which has to do with kingdom, is seen here portrayed in the coming of a Messiah, an anointed ruler, on behalf of God who would reign over his people. And he begins to grow. He begins to shoot forth from this stump. Look at uh, verses 2 through 5 and we'll find out from these verses what kind of king this kingdom has. What kind of king. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What kind of king is ruling in this kingdom that the prophet envisions? Well, there's a few things he tells us about. Number one, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. The Spirit of God rests upon this anointed king in a unique way, in a special way to empower him for this work. And along with the spirit that rests upon him, he's characterized by wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord, right? This is man in right relationship to God, right? Fear of God, knowledge of God, wisdom, and understanding. This is God's king rightly relating to God as the ruler, He delights in the fear of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase. We don't talk often about the fear of the Lord bringing us joy, bringing delight, but that's the truth. If if a person is rightly related to God without sin getting in the way and tangling things up, the fear of God is delightful. Recognizing God as the authority who could do whatever He pleases and He could squash me like a bug if He felt like it. There's delight in recognizing the vastness, the mightiness, the the fear of this God. Then it speaks of his judgments. So as he reigns as king, he obviously has to settle disputes in his realm, right? That's what a king does. And his judgments will be righteous. I want you to notice that he will be focused on equity and on raising up those who are oppressed. It's interesting that he says his judgments will be, uh, that he will judge righteously for the poor, excuse me, I'm trying to find a verse. Verse four, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He's uniquely concerned with the plight of those who in this earthly broken realm have been marginalized and oppressed and and sidelined. Well, this king will with justice and equity and love lift up those who have been oppressed and those who have been poor and those who have been, bowed down by this world's cares. He will destroy the wicked by his word, That by the rod of his mouth is a metaphor for the, the strength and truth, the piercing nature of his truth with which you cannot argue. When he calls sin, sin, there is no hiding from the eyes of this holy judge. His judgments will be Righteous. When it says he will judge not by what he sees and settle disputes not by what he hears, it doesn't mean that he's going, I don't know what's going on. It means he's not limited as mere human agents are. He's not limited by perspective. Well, okay, let me hear your version of the story. I, it sounds to me like this is probably what's going on. He doesn't have to depend in that way on the, a limited perspective. He will judge with perfect righteousness every time. And then finally, righteousness and faithfulness are his garments, right? The belt of, of, of righteousness and, and the belt of, uh, of faithfulness are what he has strapped on himself. This characterizes him, even in the way he presents himself. Don't you want this to be your king? This king rules with love and wisdom and justice, and he lifts up those who are bowed down, and he cares with perfect love for his subjects and in this fallen world we've never known such a rule even the very best ones are flawed even the very best examples in history of just societies are only just in a dim fallen twisted kind of way this is a just king the likes of which we've never seen What kind of society does this just king rule over? That's what verses six through 10 tell us about. What kind of society do we see? Look with me there at verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. What is this society like where God's Messiah rules as king? Well, predators live in harmony with their prey, right? Wolves, lions, bears, cobras, oh my. They live in in harmony with those who in our world, they attack, they eat, right? Lambs and calves and even children with poisonous snakes with no fear. They they live together in harmony. Carnivores change their dietary habits, right? It says the lion will eat straw like the ox. And these, of course, are metaphors, right? He's not necessarily saying that when we're in the kingdom of God, we're gonna see a lion and a lamb hanging out together. Maybe we will, I don't know. But I think he's speaking here Uh, metaphorically and employing the starkest possible contrasts predator and prey to convey the simple but profound realities in the Messiah's kingdom. Here's a few of these realities. Number one, enduring peace and harmony. Enduring peace and harmony. Does that characterize the world we live in? No. Does that always even characterize the church? No. But in this kingdom... Where Jesus reigns, there is enduring peace and harmony. Another passage in Isaiah back in chapter 2, similarly looking forward to the rule of Messiah, speaks of, uh, of, of swords being uh, beat into plowshares and spears bent into pruning hooks. There's no need for weapons of war anymore because we're not fighting with each other. There's peace and harmony. There's true equity and justice. True equity. People are treated fairly, rightly. People are given the, the proper honor and, and care and respect that they're due as image bearers of God. The mighty no longer prey on the weak. If you think about that metaphor of the lion and the lamb, again, the predator can lie with the, with the prey because he's no longer, by his strength, overpowering and, and using and abusing. Uh, the weak for his ends, which is something that characterizes the broken kingdoms of this earth, the strong prey on the weak, but not so in Messiah's kingdom. There is full knowledge of Yahweh. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When God is known Fully, rightly seen for who he is. Wills bow. Brokenness repairs. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. And then finally, the king is rightly honored and adored. Boy, that doesn't happen. Our world is so against the Lord Jesus. So hateful toward him. So belittling of his character of his even his existence certainly over any claim of authority the world doesn't get it the world diminishes him but in this kingdom the king is rightly honored and adored look at verse 10 in that day the root of jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him the nations shall inquire and his resting place shall be glorious like i want to get to this king i want to know about this king I want to live under the rule of this king. He's rightly honored for who he is. This is the kind of society that God's Messiah will reign over. And the kind of king that this Messiah will be is one who reigns with perfect justice and wisdom and love. This kingdom is what Jesus came announcing. In Luke chapter 4, after his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus came into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And to this point, to the people of Nazareth, he's Joseph's kid, right? He's the, the son of the carpenter. And Jesus comes into the synagogue, and he takes a scroll from Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 61 that he begins to read from. But he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and he reads aloud to all those gathered in the synagogue these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That's kingly language. To anoint a king. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the clerk at the synagogue, he sits down, and with every eye still on him, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom is coming. The king has arrived. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim liberty and good news to the poor and freedom for the captives. Today, that's fulfilled in your hearing. Which raises the next question. Is this kingdom here yet? Jesus seemed to speak that way. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Does that mean then that immediately from that day, Everything was set right. Has this kingdom arrived yet? It ought to be immediately clear to you that this kingdom of justice and righteousness, of peace and equity, where Christ rules unopposed over his people, doesn't much resemble the world in which we know, the world that we know today. In fact, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2:8, speaking of Christ and his rule, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he's speaking, he's quoting uh, from the Psalms and speaking of how God has, has given to the Messiah, to Christ, to Jesus, authority. He's placed everything in subjection under his feet. And then with his own commentary, he says, now we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. As if to say, there's a tension here. This doesn't feel quite right to us, right? Because we think, wait, if everything is a dejection to his feet, shouldn't the world be perfect by now? Shouldn't the kingdom have been fully realized, fully established? We also know that Paul in Philippians chapter 2 is able to pronounce that because of Jesus humbling himself and suffering and death, that God the Father has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. He's already been exalted. He's already been given the name above every name, but he doesn't yet have all the glory, does he? We don't yet see everything in subjection to him. So there's a tension here that I trust we can all agree about. The kingdom of God has begun, but it's not yet complete. The kingdom of God has begun, but it's not yet complete. Now, in in theological language, if you were to pick up any book by a theologian, you would read of perhaps the phrase inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. Bonus points to anybody who can name the phrase and define it for me after the service. Inaugurated eschatology is basically this. It's the idea that the kingdom of God was inaugurated, that is begun, right? When, a, when someone in authority steps into office, we do this even during U.S. presidential cycles, when the new president comes into office, we call that the inauguration, right? It's the beginning of his administration. So the, the kingdom of God was inaugurated by Christ in his death and resurrection, but it awaits final consummation at his future Return. It's begun, but it's not complete. There's an already and a not yet when it comes to the kingdom of God. So, the answer to that question is the kingdom of God here yet? is yes and no. It's already come, it's already started, it's already been announced. The king is already on his throne, but it's not yet fully realized they're fully developed there are aspects of kingdom life that are visible now and aspects that we will not see until Christ's return and it is precisely in this tension of the already not yet realities of Christ's kingdom that we begin to see the role he intends for us to play in this age of unconsummated glory. So if you think about the tension we live in, the kingdom has started, but the kingdom is not yet complete. This is where we start to see, okay, here's what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do. And so here is the call of the kingdom, the third C, the call of the kingdom. I'll point your attention back one more time to the great commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus announces his ascension to the throne, right? He began those instructions by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? What's he saying? I'm ascending my throne. I've been given the kingdom, it's mine. I am king. He announces his ascension to the throne and then he assigns his church with a task. What's the task? Make disciples. Discipleship, as we've already spoken of at length, is more than mere doctrinal awareness, more than mere conversion to faith. Discipleship is all about the kingdom of Jesus. It's all about recognizing his rule, submitting to his rule, inviting others into the kingdom and being a subject, a citizen of this kingdom. I want to read to you an article from our statement of faith. So this is the Baptist faith and message edited in the year 2000 article 15 is called the Christian and the social order. And I have found when I start wrestling with or listening to different voices on the question of what is the role of the church in society and how much is worth our attention and how much is sort of outside of the bounds, right? And and just distracting us from the gospel. I have found it helpful to look back to this document and go, even our own tradition is not without a voice here, is not without instruction. Here's the, the paragraph, the Christian and the social order from the Baptist Faith and Message. It says this, all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's where we get gospel centrality, gospel proclamation in there. Okay, we're not just a social wel- welfare organization. If we're doing social welfare and not proclaiming the, the gospel, we're not doing anybody any lasting good, right? That's not what we're supposed to do. So it's only truly and permanently helpful when people are regenerated by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and His truth. I think that's a pretty good statement. That's a pretty good paragraph trying to encapsulate what it means to be the unique people of Christ who represent an otherworldly kingdom Nevertheless, seeking the good and the well-being of the society around us. Baptists have spoken on these matters. It's helpful to be reminded of that. And there's some parts that are opposing things. There's other parts that are more constructive. We should speak, we should defend, we should work for. So let me give you a few implications of uh, an inaugurated kingdom, all right? An inaugurated eschatology that says the kingdom has begun, but it's not yet complete. I've got five of them to be exact, all right? So you know exactly how much longer we got. A few implications for us. Number one, we should be prepared to recognize the concurrent presence of great beauty and great evil in our world. There is the possibility of both real truth and beauty and God-glorifying things right alongside that which God forbids and condemns and which dishonors Him. Our world is a tangled mess of contradiction. There's beauty and evil. There's truth and falsehood. There's life and death all right next to each other and frankly our own hearts are a bit of a tangled mess if we're honest with ourselves there's good and truth and righteousness and then there's nagging besetting sins there's temptations that pull us away from christ and his kingdom get used to tension right don't be surprised by stuff that doesn't make sense in our world. Prepare for disagreement, debate, misunderstanding, even among sisters and brothers in the Lord. We won't always see these things the same way. Number two, the Christian's settled hope in the future fulfillment of Christ's kingdom. We live in the tension of the already and the not yet, but what we should have our eye really fixed on is the not yet. What we should really be living for is the fullness of the kingdom that's coming. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, where he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And listen... We should remember this especially during troubling times, during uh, divided and, and, and polarizing times, such as a global pandemic, societal upheaval and racial violence, a presidential election around the corner with everybody shouting about the right thing to do. It's always good to remember that no matter who's in the White House, Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven and his kingdom will one day be fully and finally established in the new earth. That's home. Don't get too wrapped up. Don't get too wrapped up in the trappings, the political stuff especially. We have, Christians have not a great track record in terms of taking the sort of cause of the kingdom and wedding it too closely to political aspirations in this world I'm not saying there's no value in politics or in working in those systems in which we have for a better and more just society but but Christians have often seen those things much too close together not just in America think about vast swaths of Christian history the church and the state were actually linked together the authority of the state and the church were side by side which should not be so remember Christ is king his kingdom is coming in its fullness That's our home. That's our hope. Number three, a third implication. uh, The Christian's relevant concern for brokenness and injustice in our social structures. It is right and relevant for God's people to be concerned for pain and suffering and for injustice and oppression that happen around us. Sometimes, of course, that pain and suffering and injustice affects people who are in the kingdom, who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we show concern for God's own family and God's own citizens when we express care and concern for those broken uh, systems and structures that that bring pain and, and harm. But even for those who are outside of the kingdom of Christ, who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus as their king, It is right for us to be concerned for the suffering that people who all bear the image of God are enduring around us. We shouldn't be surprised by evil and distortions in our society, and we should care about the suffering that it produces. Remember Christ's prayer in Matthew 6 that we read together earlier. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer. We're asking God, will you please let your kingdom come? Make it so that your will is known and obeyed. Surely it means more than, can't wait till that happens someday. We are asking God, please make it so that your will is done increasingly in this age. Make it so that your kingdom is realized increasingly in this world. It's right and relevant and Jesus-like for the church to be concerned for the well-being of those around us. Now, to be sure, we won't always agree on what exactly is right and wrong, or what exactly amounts to justice or injustice. We won't always agree on those things, but it's right to be concerned about them. And to the extent that sort of discussing and and debating can bring us to greater clarity on issues of justice and injustice than debate. Let's talk. Let's discuss it. Let's not hide from it. Let's not be afraid of it. We want to care about the things that Christ calls us to care about. Number four, there's a real evangelistic opportunity in the already not yet tension of the kingdom of Christ. There's a real evangelistic opportunity here the fact that this kingdom is busted and the kingdom that we're waiting for is perfect actually gives us some really good ground for evangelism. That is for sharing good news. Sharing our faith might look less like name-dropping Jesus, as I've heard one teacher talk about, and more like announcing a coming kingdom where peace and justice reign. When, when the world and those around us complain our institutions and power structures are corrupt and unjust. The church's response should probably not be to deny the reality of those injustices or the legitimacy of their complaints. I think often that is the response of Christians. We want to parse what they're claiming so that we can maybe determine, okay, I don't think that's really injustice. And therefore, it's not really our responsibility, which sounds a little bit to me like, who is my neighbor? The the church's response should not be to deny the reality of injustices or uh, or the legitimacy of their complaints. Rather, the church's response should be to point the world to a better kingdom with a just king where no corruption or injustices remain. We spend so much time debating the reality of injustice in our world that we forget to actually tell people, hey, we know of a kingdom where these injustices are conquered, where righteousness and equity reign, with a king who rules his subjects with perfect wisdom and love and compassion. And you can become a citizen of that kingdom through repentance and faith turn from your sin, trust in Christ and what he accomplished at the cross and in the empty tomb and you can be a part of this kingdom that's coming where these injustices and these hurts will be no more tensions in our culture about abuse of power, racial inequities and structural injustice actually provide a doorway for the gospel and the doorway is probably not deny the validity of those complaints and say, well, that's not your real problem. Your real problem is that you're a sinner. You need to repent. Okay. Maybe God might work that way for some people who like to hear hard truth like that. But I think it's more likely that the doorway for the gospel in those situations is when we sympathize with the complaints of those around us and feel compassion for the plight of those who are unjustly marginalized and on that basis offer a holistic solution to these ills namely the kingdom of Christ the kingdom of Christ in its not yet fully realized state itself provides us an opportunity to point people toward a coming reality where all of these injustices are done away and invite them in become a citizen of this kingdom and the fifth and final implication is this the church is the presence of the kingdom of christ in this world now this is a big point i could make this a sermon i could make this a series of sermons i'm not going to do that so i'm just going to sum this up and maybe just pique your interest and you can go look it up later or talk to me more about it later the church is the presence of the kingdom of christ in this world The church is the realm where Christ rules his subjects through the authority of his word, where his citizens are identified and socialized into kingdom living. We identify kingdom citizens, namely through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, where we mark people off. This is one of us, right? That's what baptism and the Lord's Supper essentially do we are recognizing this is a true professor of Christ. This is somebody who is truly a citizen of the kingdom to the best of our ability to discern. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper, as we take the supper together, is a marker that we belong to him, we belong to this kingdom. And so we identify the citizens of the kingdom in the ordinances. And then we are socialized, we socialize one another into kingdom living through worship and discipleship and, and preaching and teaching and, and, and mutual encouragement and discipleship of one another. We're, we're, we're socializing each other into the, the language and the ethics and the, the values of the kingdom. Jonathan Lehman speaks of the church as an embassy of the, the kingdom of God on earth. Really helpful little book, a little blue book that's about 100 pages called Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. Uh, I would highly commend it to you if you're interested in parsing this further. The church is the presence of the kingdom of Christ in this world, which means, friends, we've got a high calling, we've got a high bar. The Lord calls us to holiness and justice and righteousness, and love of neighbor. He calls us to embody the kingdom that's not yet fully realized in this broken world as a a witness, as a light in the darkness. So I think the kingdom of God is a biblical theological theme that gives us really good rails to run on. When we come to these questions, what, who is the church? What is the church to do and be in the world? Where are the boundaries that define what is our work and what we should leave for somebody else? The kingdom of God such a helpful category for us to think about. I pray that the Lord will guide us to dig in deeper and to learn more. I, I want to conclude with a, a quote from uh, Russell Moore. Russell Moore is the president of uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And he's a very strong Southern Baptist voice on issues of justice and righteousness uh, in our culture. And in his book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, uh, he says this. If the kingdom is what Jesus announced it is, then what matters isn't just what we neatly classify as spiritual things. The natural world around us isn't just a temporary environment, but part of our future inheritance in Christ. Our lives now are shaping us and preparing us for a future rule. And that includes the honing of a conscience and a sense of wisdom and prudence and justice. God is teaching us, as he taught our Lord, to learn in little things how to be in charge of great things. Our lives now are an internship for the eschaton. If we are united to Christ, then his priorities become ours. And if we're being trained now for rule later, then we can't assume that social issues are merely concerns for government leaders. We are government leaders in waiting in a much bigger government than the one we see before us. Let's pray.